we're starting this new relationship series uh, for the month of June, and we called it Thrive. And I don't know where you'll find yourself in the picture of the relationships we're going to talk about. Two weeks on marriage, one on parenting, and the last week is going to be on the single life um, that Alex is going to talk to us about. And we're excited about this, but you know... What if Jesus, in John 10, had said, I came that you might have life, and instead of saying might have it to the fullest or might have it abundantly, said, might have just enough to make it till I come back. Just barely what you need. But he didn't. He said, I might come that, I come that you might have life and might have it to the fullest, might have it more abundantly. And that's why we called this series Thrive. It's really easy to settle in relationships, to get to a certain point in a relationship and go, this is as good as it gets. I think there's a movie by that title, in fact. But that is not the truth. And we want to encourage you wherever you're at that God has more for you in your relationships. And that's why we gave it the title Thrive. Because we want each one of us to have relationships that thrive, not just survive. Take a look at this video clip with me. You know, I think about the decision you made. Maybe I was being naive, but I believed that we would grow old together in this house. That we'd spend holidays here and have our grandchildren come visit us here. I had this image of us all gray and wrinkly and me working in the garden and you repainting the deck. If you need this, Jack, if you really need this, I will take these kids from a life they love and I'll take myself from the only home we've ever shared together and I'll move wherever you need to go. I'll do that because I love you. I love you. And that's more important to me than our address. I choose us. I choose us. These words really describe the essence of marriage. I've always loved this movie because of this one big idea that's so unusual in our culture. Choosing us instead of I. Things happen. A friend of ours, they, were, they had a farm, they had two kids, they were living a great life. And one day, on a work day on their farm, friends were there helping him with some hay in the barn and he fell from the hayloft. And he experienced a spinal cord injury that paralyzed him from the neck down. So his wife, Carol, cared for him. And meanwhile, she worked full time. They raised their two kids together until just a few years ago when he went to be with Jesus. Carol chose us with a smile and with joy. And if you're married or you've been in any kind of friendship or relationship that's healthy, then you know that you have opportunities to make the same choice 
that my friend Carol did and that T. Leone did, the actress, in this video. We're going to take a look today at the first words shared about marriage in the Bible. And they're found near the beginning in Genesis 2.24, before there was ever any tears or crying. It's really true. Genesis 2.24, this is the part in God's big story where everything was still right with the world. Where sin had not entered the picture. And they've just created all the animals and created man and they've named the animals. And now Adam isn't finding someone like him. He's not finding a corresponding part. So God puts him into a deep sleep. And he takes a rib from him and some flesh, and from that shapes this woman, Eve. And it says when Adam woke up, I like how the New Living and the NIV say it. He said, at last, or finally, when he opened his eyes and beheld this woman, this correspondent. I think he must have been looking as he was naming those animals. It was like a hidden personal agenda. Where's the one that goes with me? Everyone here has one that goes with them. But he didn't find that. And God brought an answer to him. And right in that moment, as Adam says, finally or at last, and he says, flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones, she should be called woman. Then God shares his first words on marriage. And this is what he says. He says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, I know a lot of you know that this isn't just some ancient declaration for that time, but that this was God's first and definitive statement on the marriage relationship and his design for it. In fact, Jesus echoed and repeated these same words. It was his most favorite quotation to give. When the Pharisees were asking him questions about um, marriage, when the scribes were asking him questions about marriage, he often would quote this verse. It hasn't always been that way, he'd say. And then he'd say, from the beginning, this is what God designed. And the Apostle Paul repeated these very same words for us in Ephesians 5, verse 31. So I want to read that verse again, taken straight from Genesis 2.24. Then I'm going to ask you to read it with me on the screen out of Ephesians 5.31. Genesis 2.24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Now read with me Ephesians 5.31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Today, we just want to make three observations, and then we want to move right into the application. Because a lot of times when it comes to relationship stuff, our heads are way ahead of our practice. We know more than we're actually doing. And I hope that this is just a big reminder, an affirmation for some of you, a confirmation for some of you, and uh, spurring you on for others, encouraging you. But first, a little context as we talk about merging two lives. I like what Dr. Henry Cloud says in his book, Boundaries and Marriage. He said, it takes two to become one. Well, what's he saying there? I mean, didn't we just read that? Well, what he's saying is he quickly identifies that the problem with merging two lives into one is that we're talking about immature, messy, broken people. And when you blend immature and brokenness together, that's quite a blend, isn't it? 
You know, I've been thinking about what Portland's famous for. Let's see, coffee and microbrews are two of the things. And both of those things get named with all kinds of interesting names. And it depends on sometimes they want to communicate what the ingredients were. And other times they want to give you a feeling so that you'll be drawn to their particular product, right? And so I ask myself, what would our blend be called? Our blend of marriage. Well, I want to set the stage for our talk in this, that God's grace is available to all of this. And, and today, you know, I come from a broken home. Several times in my growing up years, my parents separated and we lived apart from my dad. And they'd get back together, but eventually, as a young adult, my parents divorced. And I know the pain that goes along with that experience, at least from the viewpoint of a child. And some of you out there have experienced that same thing from your own perspective. But today, as we talk about God's original design for relationships, I hope that what you'll see is that today we want to take a look at what God says and think about our lives moving forward from this point. It's not as much a look back as it's a look at right now, what am I to do? in my relationships, based on what God's original design was. Instead of a look back with hopelessness, with regret, with feeling bad, with condemnation, which the enemy is so good at doing, and he loves to use God's word to do it. And that's not God's intent today. His intent is to encourage us, to inspire us, to help us, instruct us in our way. So today, the hope of the gospel is this, that Jesus Christ can intervene in our stories wherever they find you at today, wherever he finds you today, and he can bring hope and he can bring redemption and he can be, bring restoration in your relationships. So I just want to acknowledge that. So let's make a few observations about what merging means, what this two becoming one and two being united really means. Merging, it means that we're committed in a permanent Relationship. It says here that the man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And united is what the NIV says. And I love the King James word. It's a real old word that we don't use much anymore. Cleave. But both of these words actually mean the same thing. To glue something together in a permanent bond. And I think the best example in terms of glue in our culture is epoxy. And I don't know how many of you have ever worked with epoxy. But you know it's two, two goops. That's what I call them. Okay, two squirts. Okay, you get two syringes and you uh, squirt each of these substances into the joint that you want to glue or the two things that you want to have stay together. And the two chemicals together work together and form this amazing bond. And merge is just a synonym for this. To unite or join together as a result of mutual action. You know what? I found that in our culture, that sounds so romantic and gentle. I mean, the bride walks down the aisle, right? And, and they say their vows to each other. And we talk about the two becoming one. And everybody's like, oh, that's so special. You know? I feel that way too. But the reality is a little bit different. All of life. When you talk about blending anything, I've always wanted to do a cooking show. This is my fulfilling one of my bucket lists right here. Okay, so I've got three eggs in here, a cup of sugar. If I want to blend this, I take my wire whip. That's right. I'm going to lift it up. Now, I don't have a camera because it's not a real show, right? But it's not effortless, is it? I don't just say to the ingredients, blend. I don't just declare, you are one. And they suddenly are just so beautiful and wonderful together. 
Okay, let's take it just a step further. That's right. I brought my trusty blender. Now, I don't know which you are, the bananas or the strawberries. Oh boy, at least it didn't hit me. This is why they don't give me my own cooking show. <laughs> right there. <laughs> what I really wanted to do with that, and I know it's a little bit crazy and out there, but you're going to remember it sometime. You're going to remember it sometime when you're thinking it should be easy for us to agree on this. It should be easy for us to take our two opinions, our two viewpoints, our two strongly held viewpoints about this, and merge them together. And it's not. It takes a lot of effort. And all of blending in our culture reminds us of what this word is really all about. And this is all about the permanent commitment that we make to each other. And this is what creates a context for doing this hard work. It's what motivates me to do this hard work. I'm going to love this guy till Jesus comes back and beyond. To infinity and beyond, as Buzz Lightyear would say. <laughs> but it's in that permanent relationship that we create a context for, for blending that really motivates us to do it. All I know, 60% of couples today have lived together prior to marriage. And you know what's happening when people decide to do that? Well, I'm just going to say, you're selling yourself short if you're doing that, okay? Whoever you are out there. Because there's often people like that. And Jared and I, that's about right. The percentages that come to us. This is even in the church. People are living together. And what they're doing is they're trying to do this without any commitment. Without this permanent commitment to each other. And that is the hardest thing of all. That almost predicts that it will be difficult. And if, in fact, if you look at the stats on people who live together, they think that that will make a more enduring marriage, but when they do get married, they divorce at much higher rates than those who didn't live together. So the experiment doesn't really work because blending is all based on this commitment, this permanent commitment that we make to each other. God is describing for us a design that is not a consumer relationship, but Instead, it is a relationship of commitment. It's a relationship based on a promise that we make to each other instead of a transaction. We know the difference, right? I go into the store, I pick up something, I say, you give me this and I'll give you this. That's a transactional relationship. That's not a relationship built on commitment. Every consumer relationship is built on that. If you have a relationship that only works when you're doing certain things for that person, that's what you've got. A consumer relationship, not this wonderful relationship built on a permanent commitment to each other. Now, I've heard people say, why get married? It's just a piece of paper. Who needs it? And our marriage commitment absolutely impacts whether we do really end up merging our lives. Longitudinal studies, that studies of people, the same group of couples over a long period of time, found that if two-thirds of unhappy couples stay together for at least five years, guess what happens? They end up staying married. They end up staying married because they work past the difficulty that they're in. I love how Timothy Keller 
talked about this in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. He tells a wonderful story. You might have read it in Homer's The Odyssey. It's the story of Ulysses who's taking his crew and they have to pass by the island of the sirens. And the sirens are these women who call out to them and are actually luring them to their death on the rocks around the island. And Ulysses does not want to make a temporary decision to be lured by them and end up with permanent negative results. So what does he do? He tells all of his sailors they have to put wax in their ears and he puts them in his. And he says, tie me to the mast and don't listen to anything I tell you to do until we get out of earshot of these sirens. You say, what does that have to do with this? Well, what can keep a husband and a wife together in difficult or tempting times like Ulysses was experiencing? It's this permanent commitment that we've made to each other. You see, in a consumer relationship, nobody's tied to the mast with earplugs in, waiting for that time to get out of earshot of of that temptation or that luring. Instead, when we have made vows in front of God and our family and the people who know and love us, it's that commitment that ties us to the mast So that when the temptations come and when the difficult times come, when somebody's trying to lure us onto the rocks and destroy our relationship, we experience something different. Lewis Smedes wrote a book called A Chorus of Witnesses, and he describes the impact of making this kind of commitment on a relationship. Here's what he said. You can follow along on the screen. Yes, somewhere people still make and keep promises. They choose not to quit when the going gets rough because they promised once to see it through. They stick to lost causes. They hold on to a love grown cold. They stay with people who become pains in the neck. They still dare to make promises and care enough to keep the promises they make. I want to say to you that if you have a ship you'll not desert, if you have a people that you'll not forsake, if you have causes you won't abandon, then you're like God. What a marvelous thing a promise is because when a person makes a promise, she reaches out into an unpredictable future and makes one thing predictable. She'll be there even when being there costs her more than she wants to pay. When a person makes a promise, he stretches himself out into circumstances that no one can control and controls at least one thing. He'll be there no matter what circumstances turn out to be. With one simple word, of promise, a person creates an island of certainty in a sea of uncertainty. That is what Carol did for Mike after his accident. That is what God did for you and me. Whether you're married or whether you're single, God has done this for each one of us. He looked ahead and he saw you and me. He saw us in our lost cause moments. He saw us when we were pains in the neck moments. He saw us and he made one thing predictable in our very unpredictable future on this planet where the rain falls on the just and the unjust, where bad things happen to good people, where uncertainties encroach on our lives almost on a weekly basis, sometimes a daily basis. He reached out into that uncertainty and created this island of certainty. And what was it? My love for you will never fail. I will never fail leave you or forsake you. I will not abandon you. He leads the way in showing you and I how we can commit to another person. 
I hope today that you'll let Jesus' commitment to you be the example that inspires you in your commitment to your spouse. You see, no matter how you've been raised, no matter what picture of marriage you had growing up or didn't have, there doesn't need to be any missing parts in yours. Because Jesus Christ and his love for us and his permanent commitment to us is the example that you can build your marriage on regardless of the marriage that you've come from, regardless of the marriage that you were raised with. And that is hopeful. You can turn that around. God's original design for marriage was a permanent commitment. Secondly, merging means that we are one. That is an exclusive commitment. It's not only permanent, but it's exclusive. And it kind of goes without saying what exclusive is, but I have to say it in our culture. And that is, it's when both people in the relationship agree that they'll be faithful and committed to each other and only to each other. Now, I know some of you might be saying, duh, huh, Anne? You know, we got that. But others might be saying, wait a minute. What about the Old Testament where it talks about multiple wives and where it talks about the concubines that some of these guys had? And yeah, it's R-rated, right? A lot of the Bible is, a lot of the Old Testament in particular. They had concubines. And what about when some of these patriarchs grabbed their wife's handmaiden and said, personal assistant in our word terminology, and said, uh, you sleep with her so that we can get the kid we want. What about that? Well, all of these, and Jesus reaffirms this in the New Testament when he's questioned about it, because Moses permitted divorce. And he's saying, that's not my original design, though. And that's what we're talking about today is God's original design. God's best for us. Remember that life abundant, not just surviving, but thriving. And all of that was as a result of brokenness in our lives. And the sin that was introduced in the world then and that we've all been very good at. And all of that just forms a backdrop for his grace. The promise of his redemption, the promise of his restoration. Now God's original design is still that Two people, a man and a woman, become one. Not three or four or five becoming one, but two becoming one. What exclusive means and what it doesn't mean. Sometimes it's helpful to take a look at what it doesn't mean. You know, when I say I'm exclusively committed to Jared, it doesn't mean that I rely on him for his every approval, for every little decision or opinion that I might have. It doesn't mean that I rely upon him for every piece of physical assistance and support and encouragement. That will get you in trouble if you think that your spouse can be the sole source of all of that. And it doesn't mean complete independence either. This is where I say, well, nope, what he thinks doesn't matter at all. It's completely my own opinions, my own control of my own conduct. This is all about me and what I like and what I think. And he's not influencing it because I'm independent. We're two independent ships sailing side by side. Not so much. So what does exclusive mean? It does mean interdependence. And I love this word because it really means that there's a mutual alliance. Him on me and me on him. That's what exclusivity is really all about. An interdependence between each other. We're each bringing all of who we are. And when Jared and I took communion at our 
um, wedding. My brother did the wedding, and I remember him bringing his hands. He said, it's bringing all of who you are, Anne, and all of who Jared is, and bringing that together. That's that whole corresponding part that God talked about in the original design. That's what exclusivity is about. And God wants that for our marriages. There's only one man for me. That brings us to the third thing that merging is. Merging means that we're for the other, that we're loving, that we're not me first. When you see a merge sign on the freeway and you see a vehicle that's wanting to merge with you, you have a couple decisions to make. One of those is you can speed up or slow down to let them make their way in or you can change lanes, right, and give them the whole lane. Either way, it requires a process and it requires you to adjust what you do. And sometimes it's a little frustrating, isn't it? Man, they, they, they start merging and they never speed up. And you slow down for them. You're like, come on, get a move on. Maybe you guys don't talk to the drivers. Okay, I do though. I do. <laughs> but you know, the truth is merging in marriage isn't much different than that. In process, when we are married, when we're one with another person, us trumps I. And Paul was really good at outlining this for them, for the church at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians, the 8th chapter, verses 32 through 35, he has this wonderful little description of the difference between being single and being married. And the big idea for being married was this, that when you are married, husband, and when you are married, wife, your primary concern is the interests of the other person. You are concerned with what they need and with their interests. And what he's really saying is it gets more complicated when you get married. There's another person to consider. My whole area, uh, arena of consideration as I'm making decisions, as I'm moving forward, I have another person to think about. So what's so tough about that? Why does it take a blender kind of effort or a wire whip whipping around in a bowl? I think that the clues are found in the description of God's love in 1 Corinthians 13. Let me just read it out loud for you. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Well, something interesting to me in this best and fullest description of God's love that we have given to us is that there's five knots in it. Five, this is what it is not. And you know what? I found that those five knots are what I call the spoilers of love. And they all have one thing in common. Me first. Envy. Envy is I want what you have. You think that leads to blending? No. Boasting. It's not boastful. Boasting is, I am so great. Oh, we say it in other words, but that's the essence of it. Love is not proud. Proud means, I have done so well by me. Taking credit for all of who you are. The fourth one, love is not rude. Rudeness says, I'm more important than you. We live this out a lot of times in parking lots. (laughs) Who deserves the best spot? Rudeness is when we think, I'm more important than you. I need this spot. That can be lived out in a lot of other more substantial ways. And self-seeking, love is not self-seeking. And self-seeking sounds like this. How can I get ahead in this situation? 
how does that help me blend with my husband? If, if every situation, I'm thinking, how can I get ahead in this situation with Jared? It doesn't move me forward. All of these knots, these spoilers of love, have this me first. And me first is the enemy of merging our lives together. And I have this little I know. I did a message on this a while back. And I handed out second place ribbons as a reminder. Because it really is true. In God's original design, you go second to win at love. You go second. That's the overriding thing of 1 Corinthians 13. And it is the reason that it takes intentional effort. Because all of us have selfishness. All of us have me first that crops up in our lives from time to time. God's big idea for marriage has never changed. It's two people, a man and a woman, united in a permanent, radical, intentional, exclusive relationship that looks a lot like Jesus' commitment to us. Jesus said, just like T. Leone, just like my friend Carol, I choose us. And he went to the cross. And he gave his life for us. He declared once and for all, I love you. On your worst days and your best days. And I'm committed to you forever. So I'd like us to take just a minute and consider how this applies to your life today. I mean June 9th, 2013. So first question, because we love to ask these questions and think about it. The first is how can you affirm your commitment to your spouse in a fresh way? Now when I was in 8th grade, I signed off a valogram for my husband And at that time, he was just another 8th grade boy, right? I was all 12 years old. It's February. I'm not quite 13. I sent him a valogram and signed it, yours till the sun melts. I didn't know what I was talking about. (laughs) It's the truth. You know what the real evidence of commitment is? The real evidence of commitment is what do you do on that other person's worst day? It happened so suddenly. I just dropped the kids off a whole uh, van load of kids at their grade school. I had taken my daughter's class, part of them, on a field trip. Dropped them off. I was heading down the street from the school, not going very fast because there's another school just a couple blocks down. I had no stop sign, no light, so I was just going slow. And all of a sudden, I saw a flash, and there was a crash, and a person's head hit my windshield. And their bike dropped to the ground that fast. I stopped the vehicle. Unfortunately, there were witnesses, and, and she had blown through a stop sign, and there was a concrete embankment there that blocked her from my view. And she was going so fast, didn't stop. So, But in that moment, that day, my husband had a trip, a fishing trip that was a gift to him in Alaska. And he was to take off in just a couple of hours. It was a trip that was never repeated that was never made up for, but he canceled the trip. Canceled his flight. He came and found me there at the site of the accident. Put his arms around me. He comforted me. He assured me. He prayed for me. He took me home. He took care of the van with the broken windshield and all that hair stuck in it from this woman's head, Leah. Leah ended up being okay. But in my worst moment, he didn't complain. I never heard another word about that trip. 
I never heard a word about what he had to miss out on or how noble it was of him to do such a thing. He was there. That's what we're talking about. Second question. How will you express faithfulness to your spouse this week? I just want to give you uh, three things, three areas. First of all, your thought life. Sometimes that's the area that God's highlighting. A fresh commitment to your spouse starts with our thought life. And I've found that the effective thing, when your thought life is strained into unfaithful territory, uh, you can't control that part of it, but you can bring every thought captive to Christ. And my favorite way to do that is to praise Jesus right then. I might have to whisper it, depending on where I'm at. I like to speak in tongues because it says the one who speaks in tongues speaks mysteries to God and is declaring his wonders. And that is a great antidote for unfaithful thoughts that have come to your mind. Number two, competition. Who is in competition with your spouse? Who or what? I have a friend. She put her negligee on her husband's computer. He got the message. You see, his interest in the computer was so great. He's spending so much time that was interfering. But you know what? Sometimes it's people. And I'm going to be frank. Sometimes for families, sometimes wives make kids that person. There is no special time for the spouse. It's all about the kids. And that's an unhealthy competition as well. Thirdly, appreciation. Third area. You know, this is something interesting that Did you know that negative thoughts can snowball and so can positive thoughts? So they did some research, a guy named Mark King Goldstein on couples. And they took a whole group of unhappy couples. They were not happy with each other. They were in varying stages of disarray. And they asked him to do one thing, to do a marriage diary. And in that diary, they were to keep track of anything that the other person did that brought them pleasure, that was good to them, that was positive, that was encouraging any of those things, anything positive. And they started keeping track. And did you know that 70% of those couples turned their relationships around? And when they studied it further, they realized that just like negative thoughts snowball, so can positive thoughts. A great thing to do. I when I was just 30-some years old, we were in a church, and a woman came to me. She was a nurse. Her husband was a nurse, and she was on a negative bent about him. And I had, did not personally know him, right? So I am, would always listen to both sides. But I knew that they were headed no good place with her description of their marriage. And so I asked her to do this marriage diary. I didn't know about this research. I just knew what God's Word said. No grumbling or complaining. Instead, the giving of thanks is always positive. And that's what she did. And did you know she, I said, come back in two weeks and we'll talk again. She had 18 things in her new diary that her husband did right. And she was starting to shift the whole focus of her marriage. And that brings us, I just want to mention, with appreciation is celebration. This is one that uh, Jared and I are just firm believers in. We think it's just another expression of appreciation. And what they've shown about if you sit down and keep a marriage diary is that the big value in that is that you become aware. You raise your own awareness. And I think that's what celebration does in a marriage is you're looking. My, our kids would say, any old lame excuse to celebrate. But you know, when you're looking for a way to, reasons to celebrate, what are you looking for? You're looking for the good stuff, right? The milestones, be whatever it is. And that's a positive thing. 
for us, I want to just add this caveat and expressing faithfulness. You know, we talk about how it's a, that, that permanent commitment to each other is an island of certainty for you, but it is also an island of certainty for your kids. The best gift you can give your kids is a healthy marriage. It's their island of certainty in a sea of uncertainty. They go to school. They see their friends' marriages, parents breaking up. They hear of terrible things that have happened to kids at the hands of other adults. They come home and they see you in your affirming, faithful ritual together. And suddenly their world is right again. There's a sea of certainty in the world of uncertainty. And I encourage you to make your own little tradition about that, as we did. Then the last question is this, is a third question, rather. Where do you need to choose us instead of I in your relationship with your spouse? You can choose to make what matters to your spouse matter to you. I can remember the first one for us, and of course you heard about the one that Jared made uh, matter to him. I love backpacking, and he does not. But he made it matter to him and went with me this last August on a six-day trip. And um, as we were sharing blisters, we were, we were talking about that and the possibility of that happening again. <laughs> but you know what? On that trip, never once did I hear him say, Oh, I'm doing this all for you. Oh, if you didn't love this, we wouldn't be here. Now, did I know this? Yes, because I know my man. <laughs> but I'm saying that matters. You can make what matters to him. My very first thing that he made me love, he made me love Mexican food. When I first met him, he loved it. I didn't. I don't know why because now I'm crazy about it. But literally, I said, if that matters to him, that's where we're going. He'd say, where are we going? I was going to OHSU, School of Nursing. And I said, hey, how if we go to Poncho's, this cool Mexican place here? And you know what? I learned to love Mexican food. I'm crazy about it now. We can choose to make what matters to them matter to us. Fourthly, what is your response to Jesus' loving, faithful commitment to you? You know that in my life, everything good about our marriage is because of my relationship with Jesus. Everything. He is the difference. You are not going to have God's design in your marriage, or in the marriage that you want to have in the future without him in the mix. It really is a triangle. It's a three-way relationship. The two of you, each, sharing the same God, worshiping him. He is the reason. So today, that might be the place that you want to reaffirm in your relationship.